Hello and welcome to Talk to Me. My name is Heather. And I'm Kathleen. And this week we are going to cry as we discuss Tower. Oh boy. It is super sad and tragic, but it's really, really good. It is. It is a <laughs> very solid documentary. I am going to watch it again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very beautiful. It is a 2016 American animated documentary film directed and produced by Keith Maitland. It premiered on March 13, 2016 at South by Southwest and later aired on a PBS series called Independent Lens. And I know I initially watched this on Netflix, but that was like years ago. Just for this viewing, I found it on YouTube. First five bucks we make, we'll give it to PBS. (laughs) I did give money to Amazon Prime to rent it, so. (laughs) And I'm probably going to buy it. Yeah, PBS was like, donate $5. And so, yeah, I think PBS owns it now. I think that they can let us have our liberties with it, considering we make zero money on this podcast. So. We spend money. Yes. <laughs> um, it's obviously an incredibly tragic story, but what makes this film different is that it focuses on several survivors telling their stories, and it's shown as animation. Yeah, which is something I have not seen before, mm-hmm. and I think made it... Like, it's still super tragic, obviously, and I, I teared up quite a few times, um, but I don't know that I would have been able to get through it had it not been animated. Yeah. The animations are achieved by rotoscoping, which I think the most famous example of that is the music video for AHA's Take On Me. Oh, good song. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. Like, oh, that's... yeah. And then um, I think Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. That one also was one, like especially like the dancing scene, like you can really tell. Yeah. Um, so rotoscoping is basically tracing over motion picture footage frame by frame which sounds really boring i'm sure it's very tedious much easier now with computers but for yeah like snow white that's in the 30s so they definitely had to use that by hand they didn't have computers (laughs) yeah no um so we haven't said this yet it's about the 1966 shooting at the university of texas at austin have you ever been to that campus before um I think so. No. No. I, I went in, I want to say high school for a field trip, maybe for newspaper or something. I don't remember. But um, all I do remember is I had already known about this story and walking near that tower, because the tower is so tall, like you could see it from everywhere, but like where like the one girl was laying it's just it makes it more walk through that area and just knowing the story and looking up and just seeing that tower like you even now like you feel it i yeah i just i i mean i've never been in a situation like that but i do feel like i'm more paranoid about everything yeah just because i mean and always have but uh, yeah i just i just the thought of like holy shit someone could just decide to take us out like yeah on a whim yeah um so the film is based on a 2006 texas monthly article by pamela koloff titled 96 minutes amazing article by the way <laughs> you have to read it honestly She's... any texas monthly article 
you should read. Yeah, I don't get magazines. Texas Monthly, like, I will pay every month for that. Yeah, no, it is, I, so many, oh, man, the story on Candy Montgomery, like, you have to read that one. Like, any Texas Monthly, like, is worth a read. It's amazing. The only magazine worth having. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Just love me some Texas Monthly. Uh, Who's the one main guy, Chip? Was it Hollingsworth? Hollingsworth? Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal writer. (laughs) Uh, So Maitland, the director, read the article and asked Koloff to have lunch with him. He suggested making a film about the story and Koloff became one of the executive producers of the film. Various UT students worked on the film as interns to finance the film. An Indiegogo was started and it generated almost $70,000 from over 330 people in six weeks. In the final days, alumni of UT offered up a matching amount. Which is incredible. Like, yeah. That's just... Early on, Maitland realized that he and his team likely would not be able to film reenactments on the campus. Yeah, there's some, something about, like, a school shooting on an active <laughs> school. Yeah, it's rough. So instead, they decided to go with the rotoscoping using footage mostly shot in his backyard, which is interesting. Animation was done by production company Minnow Mountain, and they used pictures Maitland had shot around campus. Plus, there's also, like, archive footage. Right, which is, like, a huge thing. Like, it, I mean, they have a lot of, like, photographs and video and news footage. Like, it's, like, very real. Yeah. Over 100 people were interviewed, including, at the time, media, police, students, and faculty who had witnessed the events, but only a select few were chosen. And it does seem like the people they pick, like, are main. Yeah, I, I felt like they had a lot um, to add to, like, I mean, obviously, Claire being, like, and, and the officers, like, yeah. being, like, the biggest. Well, I mean, Claire's, like, one of the big ones because she was the first one on the ground. <laughs> and, was... yeah, and just, like, you know, her, <laughs> her entire story. story. Anyway, yeah. Like, her life story, like, just the Texas Monthly article, um, just, you know. Yeah, it's really interesting. We start on the morning of Monday, August 1st, 1966. Claire Wilson is eight-month pregnant, 18-year-old, with her boyfriend, Tom Ekman. They get out of class early, grab some coffee at Student Union, and then head over to their car because they needed to put another nickel in the parking meter. The good old days. <laughs> so at 11.48 a.m., you know, it's a big deal when we have a time. They're walking across campus when suddenly Claire is hit with a bullet in her abdomen and she hits the ground. She described it as feeling like she was electrocuted. Yeah, like she doesn't even know what has happened. She just goes down. Tom goes to reach out for her and he is also struck in the neck and dies instantly. I was really hoping that passerby that told him to get up was just added as an effect, but... I read her statement where she, yeah, it definitely yeah. happened. Well, and and you have to remember that, like, there were a lot, it was, like, protests and yeah, stuff like that. Like, it was a very progressive. He thought, he, she assumed he thought she was part of a theater group protesting Vietnam War. Right. And so, you know, he's just <laughs> like, you know, get up, pick up your books, like, yeah. get off the ground. Stop and horsing around. Yeah. And, he, like, and then it's like, oh, shit. Because, yeah. like, clearly she's not just laying there bleeding for fun. No. Alec Hernandez is a 17-year-old high school student delivering newspapers on his bike and is shot in the leg. 
Alan Crum, a 40-year-old retired Air Force tail gunner, was a manager at the University Bookstore Co-op across the street. He saw Alec being dragged by people, went out to break up what he thought was a fight. Yeah, like he's just, you know, standing there working and he's just like, oh, these kids. Youth. (sighs) Youths. Learning the kid had been shot and hearing other shots, he decides to begin rerouting street traffic out of harm's way. After this, not being able to safely make his way back across the street to his store, which I looked at pictures of the front of the store. Like, the front of the store, yes, you could see, like, the entrance. You could see from the tower, but you just go a little bit across the street, and it's blocked off by other buildings. So, yeah, there's no way he'd be able (laughs) to go in the store. Yeah, so he... He decides to head for the tower to find a phone to call the store and his wife to let them know he's okay. Which at this point, like, my kid. Well, at this point, you don't know you're going to be okay. (laughs) Right, right. Like, you don't even know what's happening. And, like, you know, Claire had said, like, she was like, you know, is Vietnam, like, coming here to Austin? Like, it, you know, we're in the middle of a fucking war. Yeah. And she has no idea what's happening. She's, like, laying on the ground. People are being shot. Like, what the hell? It kind of reminds me of, do you remember, I think it was two or three months after 9-11, there was a plane crash in New York. Yes. And everybody, like, right away thought, oh, my God. It's happening again. And, I mean, and it makes sense. Like, you know, there's this huge thing going on, and, like, maybe it's, you know, made it over to Texas. Like, it, like, shit happens, and you're just like, oh, God, it's happening again, and you don't know, like. it's also... Like, almost three years after Kennedy, which which was also in Texas. Yeah, so, So, I mean, it just, but yeah, my kid, like, happened to come in as I started watching it and became engrossed. It was a really good documentary. Um, You know, she's 11, and she's just like, why is he trying to get to a phone to call his wife in his store? (laughs) He didn't have cell phones. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, well, because something's happening and like his wife and the store are going to have no idea because it's not like now where you can just look at your cell phone and like all these like articles yeah. and like you know breaking bulletin and all yeah. this stuff like <laughs> people are going to be worried like you yeah. have to like find a way to communicate with everyone he's not able to get a call out because lines are busy but he sees officer jerry day and offers to help claire is still laying on the pavement and basically feels her baby die at eight months, that baby's absolutely moving around. And with her adrenaline going from this moment, like... Oh, yeah. It, to feel the baby stop moving, you're going to know right away. Well, it, yeah, it was... Something's wrong. She said that, like, she kind of felt the baby, like, kind of, like... Drift over drip, to Yeah, side. to the side. Yeah. Kind of, like, get heavy. And, and yeah. So, I mean, I just... Ugh. Yeah, that part was rough. Alec is finally in an ambulance on his way to the hospital when it stops after a few minutes to pick up another victim. And he's terrified because he's like laying there and he can see like straight he's clear shots. Yeah, he's he's scared he's gonna get shot again. But God, that's to already be scared that you're dying. And then to be scared that, oh, I could be shot again. Yeah, and I mean just I mean the the fact that the ambulances were coming in and like, you know, taking people out because like in some situations like ambulances won't even like they can't come in until the scene is cleared and safe for them to go in so i mean it was dangerous all around for everybody yeah because at one point i think a funeral director 
took his hearse and was using that as an ambulance and he ended up getting shot so it's i i will say everybody got together though in this situation yeah there were a lot of heroes yeah which is just incredible and we're gonna go back and forth between people because it's not like you just get their whole storyline and then we go to the next person it's Right, it's kind of like moment by moment. Because again, the article is called 96 Minutes for a very solid reason. We get to 26-year-old Houston McCoy, who has possibly the most Texan name I have ever fucking heard. Um, Also, that accent. (laughs) He is an officer who has been on the force for three years. He's called to the scene, and once he gets there, he realizes the shots are still going off. He thought it was just like... Yeah, he thought that it, like, was already going to be completely handled and managed by the time he got yeah. there, and, like, it was going to be, like, whatever. Just, like, whatever. two people arguing, and then one of them pulls out a gun and shoots. He thought yeah. it was just going to be some... This isn't something that's ever happened before. No. Like, this is just, I mean, I I think that a lot of things changed because of this. Yeah. He knows it's coming from the tower, but there's no way to know where exactly it's coming from, because he assumes the shooter is firing out of one of the windows. He says he assumed it was a member of the Black Panther Party, but that group wouldn't be like my kids like officially what? formed for a couple more months. So I was like, so in other words, you you just think it's a black dude? Just say that. Yeah, <laughs> things were different. That's what I told my kid. I was like, it was yeah, a different Texas. time. Yeah, it's the South in the '60s. So he's trying to figure out a way into the tower. A student offers to help, saying he had a rifle at home. So Officer McCoy drove the kid to his home to get the rifle. Well, and that was another thing that I told my kid. I was like, you know, it's Texas. And so, like, people started shooting back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Neil Spells is a reporter with KTBC, and he is sent to report from the scene. KTBC has an interesting history. Uh, KTBC TV aired its first television broadcast on Thursday, November 27th, 1952, becoming the first television station in Austin. The station was originally owned by the Texas Broadcasting Company, which is where the call letters come from, and in turn was owned by then-Senator and future U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson and his wife Lady Bird, along with the radio station. Uh, Lady Bird used the money from her family inheritance to purchase KTBC, and she remained active with the radio station until she was in her 80s, which led to her to become the first president's wife to become a millionaire on her own. Hell yeah. That's so crazy. And of course, the owning of any media by a president or his family led to some investigations. Yeah, not something that's normally... Even uh... though it's not like he was voted president, he was kind of like given the job. (laughs) Uh, So there were some new FCC regulations eventually had to sell like part of it off and all that. Um, Anyway, I thought it was really interesting that like, oh, we had a president owning like media. Yeah. I mean, that wouldn't fly today. No. Uh, Neil is there reporting and so they're able to get information out on the airwaves to warn people to stay away doesn't work no because everyone's like oh interesting i wonder what's happening because they don't know how serious it is no well it goes back to like 9 11 how many people were just standing there watching looking up and then once the building starts everybody scatters right because they don't know that they're in danger 
they just kind of put themselves in danger. Yeah. And then it's kind of like an oh shit moment. God damn look you lose. I mean, how many accidents have happened because people are watching other accidents? Like it's... That's when it was great when my husband and I worked together because he could drive and I'd look out the window at the accidents to tell him like, okay, here's what's happening. Yeah, you know, you gotta you gotta have a carpool situation to make <laughs> yeah. it safer. Officer Ray Martinez is at home passing time until his stiff, his stiff, until his shift starts, which isn't for a few more hours. When he sees a news report about the shooting, he calls into the police station. He's told to just go over and direct traffic yeah i thought it was interesting he called up and he's like hey do you guys need me and they're like uh do we need him like he shift didn't start for like another three hours yeah so just like hey like can i can i come help and he like is and yeah he dropped his kids off at the daycare so he's just yeah he ain't got shit yeah he ain't got shit to do i like that he called his wife and was like hey i'm gonna head over but like it's gonna be all right yeah and he just assumes that he's gonna be like conducting traffic yeah the most boring thing we go back to claire who is still on the ground in a lot of pain and losing blood and she's laying on this pavement in the middle of the day with no shade and the texas uh, if you summer, don't live in texas you oh don't know God. what it's like just that summer sun just it's a hundred degrees outside yeah she's melting into the cement like well, and also when you're pregnant you're already hot and sweaty Oh, yeah. And she's got, like, bare legs that are literally, like, being scalded by the... Like, it gets so hot in in Texas, like, you can fry an egg on the cement. It's, like, ridiculously hot and just, ugh. And so, like, her bare flesh is just laying there, like, unprotected. I mean, you can get a sunburn just going out and getting the mail coming back. Like, it's so bad. It's it's dangerous. She's just stuck there listening to people arguing about someone going over to save her which god that's gonna be frustrating yeah she's just completely helpless after half an hour goes by a redheaded girl comes sprinting over and just like lays on the ground next to claire she's like asking claire are you okay and she's like lay down yeah (laughs) yeah like shots yeah shots are still ringing out this girl just like goes over and just starts talking to her yeah at 1208, 24-year-old officer Billy Speed was with another officer and others hiding behind some masonry and is hit by a bullet that slipped through a gap. I guess, like, there was banisters or something. Yeah, it was kind of like the like the open. Yeah. Um, like, I can visualize it, but I can't describe it, I guess. He had only been on the force for 13 months and then just had a baby. Like, it's so sad. He would later die at the hospital. News reporter Neil is just driving around in his car, updating people on the situation, which is probably the craziest next to the girl who volunteered to put herself out Yeah, there. out there, like, like in the middle, like, open area. Yeah. Like, she's literally, like, laying on the cement out in the open while I he's still shooting. That she said she felt it was her dress that saved her. It was a dress she hated her mom had made for her, but she had was doing laundry. So she just put this dress on that had a pattern in the front, but the rest of the dress was just beige. So she kind of camouflaged herself. Which is incredible made. when you consider her hair. Yeah, but... <laughs> Which I guess from that. a distance, like, yeah. blood. Yeah. So yeah, these people just purposely keeping themselves right in the line of sight is insane uh claire and the redheaded woman are just talking and her name is rita and rita is 
absolute hero. She's there for over an hour just keeping Claire conscious, just talking to her, keeping her talking. And that's when I started bawling because we learned Claire and Tom had only been together for a couple of months. Yeah, he... When they had met, he asked, are you pregnant or... Just chubby. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they, it was like a fast love. Yeah, they just, like they like, moved in together, were moving in together, and he was just going to accept this baby as his. Yeah, like, it which was so sweet. was not a common thing, like, in the 60s. And it I makes mean, you it was... cry because it's this horrible thing happening, but there's also this sweet love story that's also there, and then that's snatched away. Claire's not going to be able to see what her life would have been like with this, not only this baby, but this baby. I'm going to start crying and, right now just thinking about it. Like, they... Like, I love and also hate this part. Yeah, they had, like, you know, built this, like, fast family of, you know, she was excited and he was excited and like yeah. they were gonna have this whole future together with this baby and like it was gonna grow up and you know be this whole person oh, it's, yeah it's rough so because this is texas there's not only police on the ground shooting up at the tower but also civilians with fucking rifles that they grab from their homes and probably cars my kid's like why do they have guns in their dorm rooms this is texas <laughs> so i was like it was a different time why anyone on the ground thought they'd be able to hit him is insane. Not to mention, like, you don't really need to add to the gunfire. No, because it's not like there's just, like, a metal bar fence around. It's thick-ass masonry. Yeah, <laughs> like, like <laughs> it's, it's not it's, working. No. And it doesn't even stop him because there's, like, drainage spots on the observation deck that he uses as portholes. Like, you're not going to do anything. At one point, Melvin Childress contacted Austin police and offered the use of his small plane. So Childress, civilian Jim Boutwell, and Austin Police Department Lieutenant Marion Lee circled the tower in the plane, which you could see in many videos. Yeah, just like flying around. Jim Boutwell would go on to ruin many lives as a police officer and should have stayed a civilian. And you have seen this guy before. Yeah. Did you look into this? Um, I did not, but it he, sounds familiar. You're so. aware of who Orange Socks is? Yes, I am. The cop with the tan suit and the tan hat? Yes. Did the news report? That's Jim Boutwell. I thought the name sounded familiar. Yeah. He was the one who was investigating the murder of Deborah Louise Jackson. He's basically the dude who, like, started the whole Henry Lee Lucas is this huge serial killer. And he would give Lucas gifts for every murder he confessed to. So if you've seen The Confession Killer on Netflix. Which I have. You've seen this dude. Yep. He is also the one behind the Michael Morton bullshit convention conviction. Look into that one if you're interested. That was one where the woman was murdered. And so the cop just assumed, Jim, I guess, just assumed that Michael, the husband, did it because... He was upset his wife wouldn't have sex with them for their anniversary. <gasps> I remember that case. That that he wrote was. her that note and yes. left it, like, saying that, like, he was upset about, like, yes. the whole what had happened. Yes. And, yeah, he just was like, oh, okay, clearly he murdered her. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like that guy just broke into the house randomly and mm. murdered her. And then murdered somebody else. It was, like, the same thing, like, 17 years later or something. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Boutwell was the one who was like. Wasn't there, there was a kid there too, wasn't there? 
the three-year-old kid yeah yeah because he was like the kid was like um you know this man who hurt mommy or whatever and he like they didn't believe that the kid was ah i remember that very clearly (laughs) fuck this guy so jim butwell got credit for being a big hero at the ut tower shooting and then went on to fuck up many lives Sorry, I should have stayed out of law enforcement. I was like, what has this guy been up to? And saw this whole article about it. I was like, oh my God, I know who this guy is. I have seen this guy before. Clearly his sense of being a hero went to his head. (sighs) Yeah. Uh, Officer Martinez makes his way to the elevator in the tower and heads up. He gets up to the 27th floor to what he expects is a huge crew ready for a takedown. And instead it's just Officer Day and Alan Crumb. At some point, they came across Texas Department of Public Safety trooper named W.A. Cohen, nicknamed Dub. Love it. (laughs) Very Texan. (laughs) Who was carrying a handgun and an old rifle. Crum asked if he could use the rifle, and Cohen handed it over. John Fox, a.k.a. Artley Snuff, could not find where he got that nickname from. (laughs) All it said is he was well known as around town. He was a recent high school... Austin High School graduate who was taking summer classes at UT. He was visiting his friend James Love near campus when early on they had heard on the radio someone was at the tower shooting with an air rifle. So he went to check it out. Yeah, there's nothing to do. You don't have internet back Which my kid, my kid was like, why would you go there? There's nothing to do. So yeah, they get there thinking it was going to be something interesting, but realize it's a real gun. And they're in real danger, like, real close to being shot. Eventually, he gets the courage to run out to what's sort of the open area in front of the tower where Claire and Rita are. And once he takes off, others start joining him, including his friend James. And there's news footage of this. So they run over to try to grab the first woman, and she takes off running. That's Rita. And then it looks like there's just one body left until you see them move Tom off of Claire. And, yeah, it's... Because when he fell, he was, like, halfway on her, which the animation, they don't show it that way. So when you see the actual footage... And it's, I mean, this is, like, real, like, this is what is happening in that moment. Like, they are literally carrying, like, an... You know, and of course, my eleven-year-old's just like, what? "Oh my god, they're carrying her like that!" I'm like, "It's a there's somebody still yeah, shooting. Yeah, there's someone <laughs> shooting, and they have to get her out now. Yeah, like one they, person with the arms, one person with, with the, the feet, legs, and they just, are just running. Yeah, but yeah, for a long time, I thought it was just a photo of like two people, and then once you see the video of it, it's like, no, the way he fell on her, it just looks like one person. Ugh, and then like they show like him, you know, being. And they're talking about, you know, it was really difficult to get Tom out because he was dead weight. weight. Yeah. God, that guy, seeing that interview with that guy, because he had, like, just gone back from Nam or something. He was not good. (laughs) He just seemed so out of it. Because the news reporter's like, oh, how many dead bodies have you seen? He's like, dude, he just got back from Nam. Artley helps carry Claire away to safety, but of course not before his fucking glasses fall off. Yeah. As someone who also deals with classes and sweat from the Texas heat, I really felt that. Seeing them slowly fog. I was like, no, 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 no. The only thing that that could have been worse is if they had, like, fogged up. Or he stepped on them. Yeah, that too. So, yeah, he has to put his life in danger again to go back for his glasses. Because he literally can't see without them. 
I know that feeling of them just slowly falling. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like the slippery, just down the nose. So back up to the top of the tower. Martinez, Day, and Crumb reach the 27th floor of the tower. However, they still need to take the stair landing to reach the observation deck where the shooter is. They stumble upon some injured and dead on the landing, and I'll get to who they are at the end. Crumb and Martinez are kind of getting their plan ready, which leads to this humorous moment between the two of them with Crumb asking Martinez to deputize him, and Martinez not realizing this is a civilian. (laughs) Yeah, he has no idea. He just assumed (laughs) that he was some other form of law enforcement. So Martinez tells Crumb to remain at the door. He does deputize him. Um, At some point, McCoy and Dave reach the observation deck and join them. Martinez and McCoy round the northeastern corner and Day heads towards the other way. Crumb fires the rifle he has because he said he heard the shooter headed towards him. Like, there's some reports that say it was an accident, and then there's other reports that he said he heard him. Yeah, see, it seemed like an accident, but the way he said it, like, he heard him and he, like, tried to scare him back the other direction. And then he said, like, it worked and he ran back the other direction. That one's kind of weird i didn't understand so the shooter was distracted with the shot from crumb and martinez jumps out and fires at the shooter and here's another one where it says all his shots missed but the autopsy report shows like large caliber so when he said that he emptied some of the stuff is foggy i would say yeah well, and I think that they also wanted to, they didn't want to come off like they didn't give the man a chance to surrender or something like that, or like that they shot him unlawfully. But, I mean... He, this was before, like, even Columbine, they didn't immediately just go in to stop a shooter. Like, they didn't have a plan for this kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. This was something that was completely unprecedented, and they just kind of, like, were winging it. Yeah. And, you know, whoever happened to get there got there. And, I mean, rightfully so, he turned the corner and he just, like, unloaded on yeah. this guy. I mean, so, he's still taking people out. Yeah. So, yeah, he fires his weapon. Uh, McCoy fires his shotgun and hits him straight on the face with a shotgun blast, killing him instantly. Uh, they also were shooting him on the left side and... There's, it's another one of those things that's not very clear. But at 1.24 p.m., the shooting ends. Except from the people on the ground who have no idea the shooter is dead. And they are so still they're still firing, firing up. And like, tower. and so he's like waving like a white flag trying to signal like, stop shooting at us. But even when he's doing that, they're still, still shooting. Like- <laughs> yeah. And they think that it's the shooter who has surrendered. Yeah, because they even say on the news report the shooter is surrendering. Yeah. And it's, it's this poor man who's, like, you know, been a hero, and they're shooting and at him. Once people finally realize it's over, the footage is so incredible of people, like, staying in the shadows, being absolutely still, and then just starting to walk like nothing happened. Like, somebody just, like, pressed play on a remote. Yeah, they it's said the so courtyard, like, bizarre. the whole area just, like, filled up with people. Because they have, yeah, like, one of the media guys just filming these people, like, in corners, and then just getting out and walking. It's so weird. Like the ground is just covered in blood and just... Yeah, and everyone just kind of congregates to the courtyard in front of the building. So it's a sea of people just looking dazed, not knowing what to do now. Alec, the boy, shot on the bike. His father was at work when someone came in and told him there had been a shooting and his son was dead. Which, what the fuck, man? Who 
is this asshole? Yeah. I I am relieved that, you know, he basically was like, my parents didn't want yeah, to believe it and went believe to the it. hospital. Hands over to the hospital to see that his son is, of course, alive because he's doing this interview. Yeah, what a fucked up thing to sell. Not, hey, there's been a shooting. I think your son might be hurt. You might want to go to the hospital. Just, or the shooting, your son's dead. Yeah. Like, fuck you. <laughs> like, what the hell? So at the hospital, Alec was taken to surgery where a nine-inch plate and screws were put into his leg. After seven months on crutches, he regained his ability to walk, graduated high school, and went to college. Um, so that night on the news report, when they're listing off the names of the known dead, KTBC news director Paul Bolton learns of the death of his grandson, Paul Sontag. It's really hard to hear that clip. Yeah, when he's, you know, he, they're reading out the, the names, and he's just like, wait oh, a minute. Hold, 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 hold on. Go back, go back. Like, just, you hear immediate fear. Just yeah, he's like, I think you just read the name of my grandson. Yeah. And then the, the guy who's talking about it, like, kind of, like, breaks down a little bit, and he's like, I think it's just really hard because, you know, I have grandchildren, and I'm just like, oh, I think it's hard for anyone. Yeah. To find out that your family members died that way, like, ugh. Claire spent over three months in the hospital, seven weeks just in ICU alone. And the rest of the time was relearning how to walk since she had been hit, like, in the hip. During this time, Rita Starpattern came to visit her, bringing her a painting she had made. Which, sweetie, you've done enough already. Seriously, like... Why are you bringing gifts? A hero. Like, <laughs> no one else had put themselves in that position no. Like, and to also bring her a painting she did. Like, yeah. Just. Uh, um, Rita unfortunately passed away April 21st, 1996. So. And she was young too. Yeah. She had cancer. Her name was originally Rita Jones. Well, Rita Jones was her married name. Her name before was Rita Murphy. So when she was going through her divorce, she didn't want to use any of those names because those were boring. So she went with Star Pattern. <laughs> Love it. Um, after the shooting, Claire had no idea what happened to her unborn son. She was told he had been given a proper burial, but that was all the information she had. Gary Laverne, is it Laverne? I assume. There's Laverne. There's a G in there. L-A-B-E-R-G-N-E. Laverne, I think. I assume. Gary Laverne, a author friend of hers, had basically downloaded a database of gravesite locations in Austin Memorial Park, and he was using some of the information in a book he was writing, and... Noticed a unmarked plot for a baby boy, Wilson, with a burial date of August 2nd, 1966. Claire realized the plot was purchased by her mother's second husband, Lyman Jones, who was her stepfather at the time. And in 2014, Claire was able to visit her son's grave with a new headstone provided by Gary Laverne that read, Baby Boy Wilson, August 1st, 1966. Claire was never able to conceive again, but at the age of 41, she was given the opportunity to adopt her son, Cyric. Which, again, like that Texas Monthly article is mm -hmm. just really touching. You know, she yeah. completely missed out on this, like, chance at, you know, this amazing future with a man she loved and, you know, her baby boy. But, yeah. you know, she was fortunate enough to get to have a different life with yeah. you know, this other little boy. Um but also just like when she talks about how like after it happened, nobody talked about it. And no. so she literally didn't know where her unborn baby was buried until 
you know. It was too late because her mom had Alzheimer's or something. Yeah, so she didn't even remember and, like, and, you know, she says, like, why didn't we talk about it? And people are like, oh, we just assumed, like, that you didn't want to talk about it. And, like, if you wanted to, like, just, it's it's so weird. Like, and I think a part of it, too, is the fact that it was, you know, 1966 and mm-hmm. she was an unwed mother and, you know. Well, it's like um, Golden State Killer. Like, the women who were attacked, like, you just didn't talk about it. No, you, you didn't. And, you know, so she, she lost her baby, but, you know, it wasn't. Like, it was tragic, horrible. But the best thing to do is just... Sweep it under the rug, yeah. You you push that shit down, you forget about it, and you move on with your life. And so that's what everyone did. And I just, I couldn't imagine, like, you know, having... Not to that extent that, like, it was a, you know, a whole baby that could exist outside of me, but, like, I've lost a pregnancy. And just, like, that was tragic enough for me that like it was hard not to think about like what could have been and just the idea that like she carried this baby for eight months like and to not know you know where he went and not being able to go I don't I don't know that she ever even like had a name for the baby like it just the idea I don't know just oh it just kills me um Alan Krem was offered a check from the city of Austin for one day's deputized citizens pay, which he turned down. He is an absolute hero. It was probably like $5. Yeah. He passed away in 2001. Houston McCoy passed on December 27, 2012. He was the one who was like a big proponent of like Rita's story. Like he had asked his daughter to get in contact with somebody to write up something in a newspaper yeah, she was, like, the the first... I mean, obviously, like, the men who went into the tower and stopped him were, like, the huge, like, you know, just, like, they saved the day also and ended it all. Said it was their duty. Right, right, you know. put herself into danger like that for... Right, just, like, this young woman... All these woman other people are just standing there... Watching as yes. she's bleeding to death. Yeah. And, like... And, and I mean... I'm not going to say that, like, being pregnant made her, like, more... Sympathetic. Yeah, but, I mean, most people see a young pregnant woman and immediately are just, you know, drawn to this and, you know... You want to protect them. Exactly, exactly. Like, I mean, she's not... Her life's not more valuable because she's pregnant or whatever, but, like, just... It's a visual, like, Mm -hmm. that's two people right there kind of thing, and... Just Rita was just absolutely fucking phenomenal. Ray Martinez has his own Wikipedia page. He's, Ooh, he's had get an it, interesting Ray. life and career since the shooting. Uh, as far as I can tell, he's still alive. So let's just get into the rest. God. Beginning at 12.30 a.m. on August 1st, 1966, 25-year-old piece of shit Charles Whitman stabbed his mother, Margaret Elizabeth Whitman, to death. At 3 a.m., he stabbed his wife, Kathleen Leisner Whitman, to death. His excuse? He wanted to spare them from future humiliation and suffering. Which is so many family annihilators. Like, this idea that, like, people can't go on without you. Yeah. Like, please, allow me to come to terms with how shitty you are. Yeah. 
so the guy with an amphetamine and gambling problem who beat his wife didn't want to embarrass them. <laughs> okay. He took the time to call their jobs and report them as sick, so I guess he didn't want to embarrass them with a the no-call, no-show. Like, heaven forbid they get fired. Later that morning, he rented a dolly, like you use for moving, cashed $250 worth of bad checks at a bank, which I think <laughs> a is criminal to the very it's end. about $2,000 today. He then went all over town buying multiple guns, ammunition, and a can of gun cleaning solvent. <laughs> you gotta keep that shit tidy, Heather. He went home and loaded up his footlocker with seven guns, more than 700 rounds of ammunition, food, coffee, vitamins, dexedrine, excedrin, earplugs, jugs of water, matches, lighter fluid, rope, binoculars, machete, three knives, a transistor radio, toilet paper, a razor, and a bottle of deodorant. He really, really <laughs> had intention to go on forever. Yes. He then like, who on- brings deodorant to, <laughs> like... Toilet paper. Is he going to shit up there? <laughs> he, he had every intention of just, like, camping out up there and going on as long as he could. Uh, he put on khaki coveralls over his shirt and jeans. At about 11.25 a.m., he reached the campus where he showed fake identification to obtain a parking permit. Gotta do it by the book. He was claiming to be a research assistant, so he wheeled his footlogger into the main building and couldn't get the elevator to work. An employee named Vera Palmer activated for him, and Whitman thanked her, saying, Thank you, ma'am, and then just repeatedly said, You don't know how happy that makes me. Fucking crazy. Fucking creepy. That's, ugh. He gets off at the top of the 27th floor and begins yanking that stupid heavy dolly up the flight of stairs that led to the reception area before the observation deck. Here he encounters receptionist Edna Townsley. He knocks her to the floor, splits the back of her skull with his rifle butt, and then struck her above the left eye before dragging her behind the couch. So when they were talking about that finding that body behind the couch, that was her. There were two people who entered the reception area from the observation deck and noticed Whitman and his guns, but just assumed he was heading to the observation deck to shoot pigeons, like you do. On a college campus. (laughs) Once they start down the elevator, he pushed a desk in front of the entrance from the stairway. MJ Gabor, his wife Mary Frances, and their sons Mike and Mark were in Austin visiting MJ's sister Marguerite Lampour and her husband William. They were climbing up the stairs when they encountered that desk, so Mike and Mark squeezed past. Whitman fired his shotgun, hitting Mike in the shoulder and Mark in the head. He then fired down the stairs, hitting Marguerite and Mary Frances. MJ and William were not hit and went for help. Whitman then shot Townsley in the head before exiting to the observation deck. And at 11.48 a.m. is when Claire is struck. During Whitman's autopsy, a pecan-sized brain tumor was found. Despite back and forth over the years, it's been like somewhat widely agreed that the tumor, along with the amphetamine used, could have contributed to his inability to control his emotions and actions. Which makes sense. He killed 18 and injured 31. Fuck him have to agree <laughs> so events like this were not handled well they didn't even have the kind of weapons needed to put an end no. to this from like, you all know. the cops had like pistols yeah so this was really like it really 
brought about a lot of changes for the way things like this yeah, were handled. A SWAT team, that's not a thing. Yeah, like just they were completely unprepared yeah. and that's why he was able to, you know, go on this whole rampage for 96 minutes. Like yeah. that's a long time. Like when you think about like the documentary is like 82 minutes. Yeah, and so imagine watching this and there's still another like 40 minutes. Yeah, it just that like when you think about like other like active shooter situations, like they shut that shit down as quick as they can. And just, I mean, in this case, like, like he had said to some friends, I think at one point that they thought was kind of, um, creepy, I guess, um, that he had like made a comment about how, you know, you could hold off like an entire army, I guess, from the tower. Yeah. And he essentially was able to do that. Like he, Oh, he had held off all these for like months that he wanted to shoot somebody from the tower. So yeah, even even the like afterwards, what do you do? Like, there's no counselors coming or anything. Like, no, nobody talked about it. Not handled great now. Like, but by the time Claire got out of the hospital, and like they said, they literally closed the campus for one day. Yeah, they cleaned was... the blood off, and then the next. It was all back to normal. Now they'd at least take the week off. Yeah, they would. (laughs) And they would have, you know, they would have grief counselors on campus and they would, you know, close the school down for a little while. And, you know, none of that. happened. Yeah, just literally hose the blood down. Welcome back, kids. To the point that it wasn't until 2006 that a memorial garden was dedicated and a monument monument listing the names of the victims was finally added in 2016 on the 50th anniversary. Yeah, they literally didn't want they didn't want to really talk about it because they felt like if they talked about it then they had to bring up him and they didn't yeah. want yeah, so they basically just swept it under the rug and which that's a lot of the reviews on this that I read were people complaining about it not focusing on him. It's not supposed to. No. I that's what I loved about yes I about the victims and their and he's just an afterthought like yeah they don't go into his life they don't go into his reasoning for any of this until the very end yeah because he's he's not important in all of this it's it's about the people who experienced it and you know just their thoughts and feelings and and you know the entire ordeal just he was just the cause yeah. and you know this this whole documentary is the effect yeah uh following the shootings the observation deck was temporarily closed from august 1966 until june 1967 and then closed again in 74 due to suicides it was opened again in 99 after some security and safety issues were uh, safety features were added but then closed it down again after 9 11 to add more security and tours are canceled indefinitely now. I assume COVID. Makes sense. So the victims in this were Thomas Aquinas Ashton, Robert Hamilton Boyer, F- Thomas Frederick Eggman, and Baby Boy Wilson, Mark Gabor, Marguerite Lampour, Karen Griffith, David Hubert Gumby, who initially survived the shooting. However, during surgery, it was discovered that he only had one functioning kidney to begin with. 
which had now been severely damaged. He was in great pain for the rest of his life. In 2001, he died one week after discontinuing dialysis, and his death was officially ruled a homicide, so he was added to the list. Thomas Ray Carr, Claudia Rutt, Paul Bolton Sontag, Roy Dell Schmidt, Officer Billy Paul Speed, Edna Elizabeth Townsley, Harry Wolchuk, Kathy Whitman, Margaret Whitman. So yeah, this was the first televised mass shooting, which that's crazy to think about. And not the first school shooting, not the no, first like mass shooting. But yeah, it was the first at all televised. Right. It was. It was. It was a big deal. And so I think the first like big mass shooting was in New Jersey. Wasn't it that Urban guy? Yes. I think that was his name. Yeah, while at the time it was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in U.S. history, but it would only take 18 years to surpass that with the San Ysidro McDonald's massacre. I think on the top 10, it's still like number nine or something. It's insane. Well, and that's not even counting like if you factored in things outside of guns like there's like the bath school disaster um where the man literally blew up the school um like it just (sighs) you know the shitty part out of like the top 10 biggest mass shootings texas is four of them yeah starting kindergarten was a terrifying (laughs) parenting occasion for me um especially because like when you like early in the years I was like okay like at least my children should be safe through elementary school because most of the school shootings are like middle and high school or you know college and so I'm like okay nobody's going to shoot my like 10 and under child yeah but then Sandy Hook happened and suddenly I'm horrified that oh my god someone can shoot small children in a school yeah and so, yeah, and then, like, I, our kids, you know, go to the same district. And so, like, you know, hearing your kindergarten kids say, like, oh, yeah, like, we had to practice our drills for hiding from the bad man or the bad person and just. There was, uh, I want to say it was last year or the year before, there was at the high school next to my son's when he was in elementary school. I remember, yeah. Gun, and they had a shutdown all the schools around there and so we were asking my son like hey what happened at school and he's like oh we just had a shooting drill i was like that is so smart to just tell them it's another drill like it's horrible they have to go through shooter drills but for them to be yeah like, oh it's just another drill like even oh it's like, like no this is real we you know it's like tornado drill fire drill yeah active shooter drill like, it's just, you know, these, like, five- and six-year-old little kids, like, hiding in supply closets and, you know, under desks and stuff. And, like, oh, the teacher, like, you know, having to lock the door and, like, all this. And it's just horrifying. Like, I can't. And I hor- feel horrible about it because I'm like, my kid's got ADHD. He's not going to be able to shut up. No. No. Ugh. I'm a bad mom. <laughs> No, I mean like. You're down this whole classroom. Shut up. I like no. My kid would, my kid would have to be like, muffled. It's like when Columbine happened. My parents coming in like, hey, you feeling okay? <laughs> yes. Do Do we need to talk about anything? Talk about anything? We okay? We good? Are we good? <laughs> yeah, like. <laughs> 
Yeah. It's a great country we live in. Oh, yeah. God uh, bless America. <laughs> this fucking state's the worst, too. Towerhistory.org is very informative. It has an interview with the first female senator of Texas, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, who at the time was a law student on campus that day. It really does come full circle. So she experienced all that, but she's still a Republican. <laughs> the ones who support guns. But that's okay. It's our God-given right. God did not make guns. I don't understand that. <laughs> did he make trees, Heather? <laughs> uh, Texas Monthly has many great articles. Seriously, hit them up. The one titled The Reckoning about Claire, like her life story and all that. Yes, um, that was that and the 96 Minutes, like both which are were both written by the same person. Phenomenal. Call off who, yeah, was the one who wrote the 96 Minute article the film was based on. I love Texas Monthly. And again, like Candy Montgomery. Yes. Gotta look into that one. Yes. I cannot wait for the movie. So that is the end of this horrible story. We'll come back with a fun one. Oh God, I hope so. I know, because I was like, I was excited for this one because I'm like, it's so good. But then getting into it, I'm like, oh, fuck, this is. That's the problem with like, like, yeah, it's like, it was such a phenomenal documentary. Like, I, again, I'm going to watch it again. But it's so sad. Yeah. We'll bring you something peppy. (laughs) Yeah, you wanted Winnebago, man. He's just so angry. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Talk to Me. The opening music is by Twisterium. For comments or suggestions, we can be reached by email at talktomepod at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at talktomepod and find a link to our Facebook group in the show notes. Thank you.